This is the Feminem Podcast, the official podcast of Feminem, discussing all things femme, a little bit of EM, and everything in between. I'm Jenny Beck Esme, editor in chief of Feminem. I'm really happy to be able to bring you this next piece of Fix 19 content. It's actually coming to you earlier than its initially scheduled time because of current events and popular demand. This is from Dr. Jennifer Sai. It's called It's Time to Talk About Racism in Medical Education. Dr. Sai is an emergency medicine physician. She's a writer, she's an educator, she's an activist, and she works to rethink and advance health and climate justice and to support equity across health systems. She gave this tremendous talk last fall at Fix 19, and I think everyone who's already heard it should be listening to it again, and anyone who hasn't heard it should take a listen now. Thanks, Dr. Sai. So one Tuesday when I was a medical student, my preceptor sent me to evaluate a patient coming in with an asthma exacerbation. Very fortunately for me, I just had several similar cases and I felt prepared with a plan to check for wheezes, retractions, order nebulizers. It stood out because it was one of the first times I had felt a little bit like a doctor and not just a medical student. I was like, I got this. I knock on the door of exam room 21 and sitting in front of me is a little black girl. The first thing she says is, I can't breathe. This is months after Eric Garner said the same three words before dying on a street outside surrounded by people. This is her umpteenth visit for the same problem. She can't get her medications, she's missing school, it's getting worse. So even though I'm better at the medicine, I'm still nowhere near the doctor that I want to be. Going to medical school was painful for me. I graduated from Brown University in 2014 with a degree in ethnic studies, immensely grateful for how this discipline had really opened my eyes to ideas on power and political economy. And suddenly I went from these small seminars where I was asked to think critically and globally to, to cursing the Krebs cycle and drinking out of a fire hose. My world shrunk. Every year, 100,000 black men, women, and children die because their mortality rates do not equal that of their white counterparts. This statistic means that if disease and mortality rates for black people were the same as they are for white people, we would stop the equivalent of a jumbo jet carrying 260 people from crashing every single day. My critical theory training helped me understand this wreckage. The slavery, lynching, genocide, and xenophobia that slice through our country's history means that everyday racism continues to clip wings. My first year of medical school was the year Baltimore and Ferguson erupted, the year Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, and Freddie Gray were murdered. But in the medical school classroom, we were continually taught that healthcare disparities could be chalked up to different genes, different responses to medications, or different behaviors. We were taught to think about race in terms of glomerular function, lung capacity, or bone density. In medicine, race mattered as a clue for which pharmaceutical to choose or for diagnoses like sarcoidosis, sickle cell, or Tay-Sachs. Our board exams taught us to think about race as something biologic and immutable, something inside of us. The implication was that healthcare disparities are caused by internal racial deficits, not because of unequal treatment from the outside world. It taught us that there was something wrong on the inside of these planes, 
not that they were being shot down. There is an immense disconnect. I have personal experience in training in critical race theory, community organizing, and ethnic studies. I graduated with a Master's of Education from Harvard in 2018. I am now an emergency medicine intern in New Haven, Connecticut, and I believe that the current state of medical education is unjust. I am here today to advocate for a change in physician training. We have to start talking about racism, not just race. Black children have rates of asthma three times higher than their white counterparts. They face a tenfold higher risk of death from their disease. And why? In medical school, we learned that genetic changes or mutations cause airway spasm, bronchospasm, or inflammation. And this sets us on a chase to find genetic differences between black and white patients. Again, the implicit theory we teach our physicians is that genetic differences in race cause healthcare disparities. Sometimes we go a little bit further. We talk about social determinants of health. And this kind of teaching often creates a web of causation, a series of risk factors like race, gender, housing, that contribute to disease outcomes. We say people of color have more exposure to mold or pollution or bad housing, that they smoke more, but we don't get taught why. We see the web and it shows us where it is, but it doesn't show us the spider. Systemic racism manifests in health equity inequity in a myriad of ways. In 2016, I taught a course on healthcare and prisoner advocacy at a high school in Rhode Island. In one session, we put on the screen this statistic, that one in three black men born before 1999 will go to prison in their lifetime. At the end of class, a 14-year-old student touched my elbow, pushed up his glasses, and said, Miss Jenny, I was born in 2002. That means I'll be okay, right? My student was arrested in 2018. He disappeared from his home before it was legal for him to drive a car. So his entire life looks different now. Being locked up is bad for your lungs. It is harder to take deep breaths when you live in a cage. People with a history of incarceration are twice as likely to have asthma. Despite similar rates of drug use, black men are 12 times as likely to be arrested for nonviolent drug offenses. And while incarceration has serious impacts on an individual's health, consider the myriad of consequences it has on a patient's family, their parents, their children, their partner, their larger community. Consider that the US now imprisons a larger percentage of its black population than South Africa did during apartheid. In this country, healthcare access for asthma diagnoses, treatments, follow-up appointments is heavily dependent on what one can afford. We usually think about this in terms of the black-white income gap, but while that itself is large, it may be more important to think about the generational wealth gap, which is startling at 6,500 for blacks, 91,000 for whites. This is a 14-fold difference, and this gap is widening. 50% of the median homeowner's wealth comes from the value of their property. So we have to go back and analyze how black neighborhoods and black families were denied home ownership. In the 1930s, the Federal Housing Association financed 60% of all American homes, yet less than 2% of these loans went to people of color. Black neighborhoods were routinely redlined and coded for mortgage defaults. And this segregation and discrimination is government-sponsored. 
It's foundational to issues that even when you control for income, these are tied to asthma, low birth weight, cardiovascular disease, cancer, lower life expectancy overall. Metrics of racial segregation are one of the most important factors in determining rates of infant mortality. And housing is not only an issue of poverty, but environmental exposure. For all through history, urban design and planning in America has chosen to run through and destroy places where people of color live, breathe, play, and pray. This is Paradise Valley, a neighborhood, a black neighborhood in downtown Detroit in the 1950s. On the right is what it looks like today after being decimated for highway construction. Homes and entire communities were carved away and replaced with miles of concrete, proximity to which has been overwhelmingly linked to lung disease. Black and Hispanic populations have higher exposure to 13 out of 14 main pollutants. They are twice as likely to live less than two miles away from sources of industrial pollution in residential areas known in the literature as sacrifice zones. So this is not a static, apolitical web. It requires active weaving. We need a critical theory of racism to see the spider, to remind us that race does not cause health disparities. That's racism. Racism is the driver of health inequity. It's dangerous to get them confused because it alters the way we imagine and pursue our solutions. Like asthma, lung cancer has its own set of disparities. African-American men have a 30% higher mortality. In response, the NIH has spent millions and millions of dollars in the development of an African power chip, which is a genomic sequencing endeavor that seeks to correlate mutations in patients with African ancestry with lung disease. An African power chip only makes sense if you think genetic differences in race are the source of healthcare disparities. But let's look at this with a theory of racism. Sub-Saharan African men have the lowest rate of lung cancer mortality in the world. Less than 100 years ago in the 1930s, the racial disparities were actually opposite of what we see today. Black men were only half as likely as their white counterparts to die of lung cancer. In the 1950s, rates of lung cancer mortality began increasing at three times the rate for black men when compared to white men. And this coincided with efforts during the 50s and 60s in which big tobacco explicitly targeted communities of color as a business strategy. There are now three to 10 times as many tobacco billboards in black neighborhoods compared to white ones. An African power chip cannot see the spider. It cannot help my patient obtain inhalers she cannot afford. If racial health disparities can be reduced to physiologic differences, then the answer to our ill health is relegated to biologic interventions. We don't need the March on Washington or fair housing or the vote. We need pills. And this is the harm. 96% of slides from medical school lectures present race as a biologic variable. From 1994 to 2005, more than 22,000 NIH grants funded research on genetics and race. In that same decade, only 44 grants were awarded to research on racial discrimination or racism. And this is a 500 to 1 ratio of spending difference that seeks to solve a problem of race when we need solutions for racism. I am here today because I cannot stop thinking about planes falling from the sky. 
I cannot believe our training surveys our society and finds the genetic code of people of color culpable for this catastrophe. When you look at health disparities, when you try and stomach the death and disappearance of 100,000 people every year, do you really believe it is because of innate black failure? Naming racism as a linchpin of health inequity changes the conversation. The culprit is not racial difference, not genes, but supremacy. Race is not a risk factor that drives disease from inside the body out. It should be conceptualized as a risk marker of systemic disadvantage that presses from the outside in. We have to use that word, racism, because we have to be explicitly anti-racist to change that 500 to 1 ratio, to pursue better science and practice better medicine. The historian Benjamin Honeycutt makes the point that our word for school comes from the word for leisure. He says, we used to teach people to be free, now we teach them to work. For many of us, our medical education has been reductive. It has trained us to work instead of teaching us how to bring ourselves and our patients closer to liberation. But imagine for a moment if it did. That potential is why I want to be a teacher. It's what I want for physician training. Good education teaches us right from wrong. It sets the stage for our understanding of justice and thus gives us our chance to be free. Thank you. <laughs>